Chapter Seven of the Box with the Broken Seals by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Crawshay walked slowly along the deck until he found a completely sheltered spot. Then he summoned the deck steward and superintended the arrangement of his deck chair, which was almost hidden under a heap of rugs. He had just adjusted a pair of spectacles and was preparing to settle down when Catherine, in her nurse's uniform, issued from the companionway and stood for a moment looking about her. Crawshay at once raised his cap. "'Good morning, Miss Beverly,' he said. "'You do not recognize me, of course, but my name is Crawshay. I had the pleasure of meeting you once in Washington.' "'I remember you quite well, Mr. Crawshay,' she replied, glancing with some amusement at his muffled-up state. Besides, you must remember that you are the hero of the ship. I suppose I ought to congratulate you upon your wonderful descent upon us yesterday. Pray don't mention it, Crawshay murmured. The chance just came my way. I, uh, he went on, gazing hard at her uniform. I was not aware that you were personally interested in nursing. That shows how little you know about me, Mr. Crawshay. I have heard, he admitted, of your wonderful deeds of philanthropy, and also that you entirely support a large hospital in New York. But I had no idea that you interested yourself personally in the, uh, may I say, most feminine and charming avocation of nursing. I have been a probationer, she told him, in my own hospital, and I am at the present moment in attendance upon a patient aboard this steamer. "'You amaze me!' he exclaimed. "'You did, I understand you, to say that you were in personal attendance upon a patient?' "'That is so, Mr. Crawshay.' "'Well, well, forgive my astonishment,' he continued. "'I had no idea. At any rate, I am glad that your patient's state of health permits you to leave him for a time.' Her expression became a little graver. "'As a matter of fact,' she sighed, my patient is very ill indeed, I'm afraid. However, the doctor shares the responsibility with me, and he is staying with him now for half an hour. May I, in that case, he begged, share your promenade? With pleasure, she acquiesced, without enthusiasm. You'll have to take off some of your coats, though. I'm suffering from chill, he explained. I sometimes think that I shall never be warm again, after my experience of yesterday. He divested himself, however, of his outside coat and arranged his muffler carefully, thrust his hands into his pockets, and fell into step by her side. "'I am interested,' he observed, in illness. "'What exactly is the matter with your charge?' "'He has had a bad operation,' she replied, "'and there are complications.' "'Dear me, dear me!' Crawshay exclaimed, in a shocked tone and in such a state he chooses to make a perilous voyage like this. That is rather his affair, is it not? she added dryly. Precisely, her companion agreed, precisely. I should not, perhaps, have made the remark. Sickness, however, interests me very much. I have the misfortune not to be strong myself, and my own ailments occupy a good deal of my attention. She looked at him curiously. "'You suffer from nerves, don't you?' she inquired. 
Hideously, he assented. And yet, she continued, still watching him in a puzzled fashion, you made that extraordinary voyage through the air to catch this steamer. That doesn't seem to me to be at all the sort of a thing a nervous person would do. It was for a bet, he explained confidently. The only occasion upon which I forget my nerves is when there is a bet to be lost or won. At the time, he went on, my deportment was, I think, all that could have been desired. The sensations of which I was undoubtedly conscious I contrived to adequately conceal. The aftershock, however, has, I must admit, been considerable. Was it really so terribly important, she inquired, that you should be in London next week? The war office made a special point of it, he assured her. Got to join up, you know, directly I arrive. Do you think, she inquired, after a brief pause, that you will enjoy soldiering better than pseudo-diplomacy? I don't exactly know how to refer to your work. I only remember that when we were introduced I was told that you had something to do with the Secret Service. They were leaning over the side of the steamer, and she glanced curiously at his long, rather sunken face, at the uncertain mouth, at the eyes, carefully concealed behind a pair of green spectacles. He seemed, somehow, to have aged since they had first met a year ago in Washington. To tell you the truth, he confided, I'm a little tired of my job. Neither fish nor fowl, don't you know? I took an observation course at Scotland Yard, but I suppose I'm too slow-witted for what they call secret service work over here. America wouldn't provide you with many opportunities, would it? she observed. You are quite right, he replied. I am much more at home upon the continent. The secret service in America, as we understand it, does not exist. One finds oneself continually in collaboration with police inspectors and people who naturally do not understand one's point of view. At any rate, he concluded, with a little sigh, if I have talents, they haven't come to the front in Washington. I don't believe that dear old Sir Richard was at all sorry to see the last of me. And you think you will prefer your new profession? Soldiering? Well, I shall have to train up a bit and see. Beastly ugly work they seem to make of it nowadays. I don't mind roughing it up to the extent of my capacity. But I do think that the advice of one's medical man should be taken into consideration. She laughed at him openly. Do you know, she said, I can't picture you campaigning in France. To tell you the truth, I can't picture it myself, he confessed frankly. The stories I have heard with reference to the absence of physical comforts are sometimes appalling. By the by, he went on, as though the idea had suddenly occurred to him, I can't think how your patient can rest, anyhow, after an operation on beds like there are on this steamer. I call it positively disgraceful of the company to impose such mattresses upon their patrons. My bones positively ache this morning. Mr. Phillips has his own mattress, she told him, or rather, one of the hospital ones. He was carried straight into the ambulance from the ward. Mr. Uh, Phillips, Crawshay repeated, have I ever met him? 
I should think not. He is, of course, a very great friend of yours. I don't know why you should suppose that. Come, come, he remonstrated. I suppose I am an infernally curious, prying sort of chap. But when one thinks of you, a society belle of America, you know, and further, the patroness of that great hospital, crossing the Atlantic yourself in charge of a favored patient, one can't help, can one? Can one what? she asked coolly. Scenting a romance or a mystery, he replied. In any case, Mr. Phillips must be a man of some determination to risk so much just for the sake of getting home. She turned and recommenced their promenade. I wonder whether you realize that it isn't etiquette to question a nurse about her patients, she reminded him. I'm sure I'm very sorry, he assured her. I didn't imagine that my questions were in any way offensive. I told you from the first that I was always interested in invalids and cases of illness. She turned her head and looked at him. Her glance was reproving, her manner impatient. Really, Mr. Crawshay, she said, I think that you are one of the most inquisitive people I ever met. It really isn't inquisitiveness, he protested. It's just obstinacy. I hate to leave a problem unexplained. To prevent any further misunderstanding, Mr. Crawshay, she concluded a little coldly, let me tell you that there are private reasons which make any further questioning on your part concerning this matter impertinent. Crawshay lifted his cap. He had the air of a man who has received a rebuff and which takes it in ill part. I will not risk your further displeasure, Miss Beverly, he said, stopping by his steamer chair. I trust that you will enjoy the remainder of your promenade. Good morning. He summoned the deck steward to arrange his rugs, and lay back in his steamer chair, eating broth which he loathed, and watching Jocelyn Thew and Catherine Beverly through spectacles which somewhat impaired his vision. The two had strolled together to the side of the ship to watch a shoal of porpoises go by. I see that you are acquainted with our hero of the seaplane, Jocelyn Thew remarked. She nodded. I met him once in Washington and once at the polo games. Tell me what you think of him. She smiled. Well, she confessed, I scarcely know how to think of him. I must say, though, that in a general way, I should think any profession would suit him better than diplomacy. You find him stupid? I do, she admitted and in a particularly British way. Jocelyn glanced thoughtfully across at Crawshay, who was contemplating his empty cup with apparent regret. You will not think I am taking a liberty, Miss Beverly, if I ask you a question? Why should I? Is it so very personal? As a matter of fact, it isn't personal at all. I was only going to ask you if you would mind telling me what our friend Mr. Crawshay was talking to you about just now. Are you really interested? she asked, with an air of faint surprise. Well, if you must know, he was asking questions about my patient. He appears to be something of a hypochondriac himself, and he is very interested in illnesses. He has the air of one who takes care of himself, Jocelyn observed with a faint smile. However, one mustn't judge. He may be delicate. I think he's an old woman, she remarked carelessly. 
"'He rather gives one that impression, doesn't he?' Jocelyn agreed. "'By the by, there wasn't much you could tell him about your patient, was there?' "'There really isn't anything at all,' she replied. "'I just mentioned his condition, and as Mr. Crawshay still seemed curious, I reminded him that it was not etiquette to question a nurse about her patients. "'Most discreet,' Jocelyn declared. "'As a matter of fact,' he went on, I've scarcely thought it worthwhile to mention it to you, because I knew exactly the sort of answer you would make to any two curious questions. But there is a reason, and a very serious reason, why my friend Phillips wishes to avoid, so far as possible, all manner of notice and questions. You call him your friend, Phillips, she remarked, yet you don't seem to have been near him since we started. Nor do I intend to, he replied. That is the other point concerning which I wish to speak to you. You may think it very extraordinary, and I offer no explanation, but I do not wish it known to, say, Mr. Crawshay, or any other casual inquirer, that I have any acquaintance with or interest in Phillips. The subject is dismissed, she promised lightly. I am not in the least an inquisitive person. I understand perfectly, and my lips are sealed. His smile of thanks momentarily transformed his expression. Her eyes became softer as they met his. Now please walk with me for a little time, she begged, and let us leave off talking of these grisly subjects. You've really taken very little notice of me so far, and I have been rather looking forward to the voyage. You have traveled so much that I am quite sure you could be a most interesting companion if you wish to be. He obeyed at once, falling easily into step with her, and talking lightly enough about the voyage, their fellow passengers, and other trifling subjects. Her occasional attempts to lead the conversation into more serious channels, even to the subject of his travels, he avoided, however, with a curious persistency. Once she stopped short and forced him to look at her. Mr. Jocelyn Thew, she complained, tell me why you persist in treating me like a child. Then for the first time his tone became graver. I want to treat you and think of you, he said, in the only way that is possible for me. Explain, please, she begged. He led her again to the side of the ship. The sea had freshened, and the spray flew past them like salt diamonds. Since it has pleased you to refer to the subject, Miss Beverly, he said seriously, I will explain so far as I am able. I suppose that I have committed nearly every one of the crimes which our abbreviated dictionary of modern life enumerates. If the truth were known about me, and I were judged by certain prevailing laws, not only my reputation, but my life might be in serious danger. But there is one crime which I have not committed and which I do not intend to commit, one pain which I have avoided all my life myself and avoided inflicting upon others. I think you must know what I refer to. I can assure you that I do not, she told him frankly. In any case, I hate ambiguity. Do please tell me exactly what you mean. I was referring to my attitude towards your sex, he replied. There was a faint twinkle in her eyes. 
That sounds so ponderous, she murmured. Don't you like us, then? There are circumstances in my life, he said, which prevent my even considering the subject. She turned and looked him full in the eyes. Her very sweet mouth was suddenly pathetic. Her eyes were full of gentle resentment. I do not believe, she said firmly, that you have done a single thing in life of which you ought to be ashamed. I do not believe one of the hard things you have said about yourself. I am not a child. I am a woman, twenty-six years old, and I like to choose my own friends. I should like you to be my friend, Mr. Thew. He murmured a few words entirely conventional. Nothing in his expression responded in the least to the appeal of her words. His face had grown like granite. He turned to the purser who was strolling by. As though unconsciously, the finer qualities of his voice had gone as he engaged the latter in some trivial conversation. End of chapter 7